theyeshiva.net. Today's class is dedicated by Meheran Javarian in honor of Entheram Bereleni, who with her love and devotion is the light that shines and illuminates the entire family. Thank you very, very much for your gracious partnership and friendship. And may your family and your mother and you and all of you be blessed with tremendous success and bracha, and Hashem fulfill all of your heart's desires in the most revealed and manifested way. So we all know the story in Parshas Vayetze, the beginning of Parshas Vayetze, Yaakov, Jacob, flees his home in the land of Canaan, and he travels east to the house of his uncle, his mother's brother, by the name of Lavan. Upon arriving at the well outside of Haran, a city that still exists today called Haran, H-R-A-R-A-N, he encounters Lavan's youngest daughter, Rachel, Rachel, and as the Torah says, <coughs> he feels, he, 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 he kisses Rachel, he sobs with Rachel, and Lavan proposes a deal. The deal is work for me for seven years, and then I'll give her to you in marriage. Yaakov does that, but on the wedding night, Lavan his future father-in-law substitutes the younger sister, Rachel, with the older sister, Leah. Leah enters the dark tent rather than Rachel, as the Torah says. And that night, Yaakov consummates the marriage, but in the morning, Vayar Baboiker, in the morning he sees that it's Leah, Vihinehi Leah. He comes to Lavan and he says, why would you deceive me? And Lavan says, it's inappropriate to marry off a younger sister before an older sister. Ultimately, Yaakov Avinu accepts his fate. He remains with Leah. Lavan agrees that he marries Rachel for another seven years of work. And that's what he does. He marries Rachel, the bride of his choice, and he works for Lavan for yet another seven years, altogether 14 years. Now this is how the Torah describes the summation of the story. And you have it, the first source sheet, Genesis chapter 29, verse 30. Yaakov cohabited also with Rachel. He also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked with love on his father-in-law yet another seven years in addition to the first seven years as a shepherd. The next verse, Hashem saw that Leah was loathed, Leah was hated, so he opened her womb, Rachel was barren, infertile. The next verse, Pasuk Lamed Beis, Vatar Leah vatelet bein vatikrishmeiru uvein ki amra, Leah conceives, bears a child, a son, and she names him Reuven. Why? Because she says, Hashem has seen my affliction, now my husband will love me. Reuven is a combination of two words, Reu, see, Bain, a child. So this name for her represented the fact that God saw, he noticed her, he, he recognized her pain, her affliction, 
And now, hopefully, there will be more affection. The next verse, Vatar Oid Vatelet Bain. She conceived again, obviously, some time later, and gives birth to a child. Whether it was nine months later, a year later, the Torah doesn't give clearly a timeline, even though in Midrashim we do have clearer timelines. Vatomer, and she says, Vatar Oid Vatelet Bain Vatomer, when she has the second son, she says, Hashem has heard, he has heard, he has been attentive to the fact that I am snua, I am loathed, and he has given me also this child, and hence she named the second boy Shimon, which of course comes from the word Shema or Shama, like Shema Yisrael, Vayishma, hearing, being attentive to listening to because Hashem has heard me. The story, of course, continues. The next child is born, Levi, and then there's another boy born, Yehuda, and then the maids have children, Bila and Zilpa. Rachel has a child. The narrative continues. This, no question, is one of the most intriguing stories in all of the Tanakh. Extremely complex, very nuanced. One immediately sees that this is a profoundly mysterious and complicated story. And the truth is that it contains some of the profoundest ideas about relationship, relationships, love, and the workings of the human mind. Today, I'm going to focus on other years. If you recall, we have dealt with various elements of the story, of this story. But today I want to focus on, tune into one, one simple question. And that is, the Torah says flatly, that Hashem saw that Leah was hated, Kisnua Leah. How could Yaakov hate or despise his own wife, Leah? So you might say, well, that's the reality. I mean, <laughs> you ask how, but that's what happened. But the real question is, Yaakov Avinu is the third patriarch, the third of the three of us of the Jewish people, the father of every Jew living since. Is this really what the Torah is just saying? That he simply hated his own spouse. Now you say, well, there was good reason for it. There was such deception. He was fooled. He was deceived. Okay, so why did he stay married to her? So he hates her, but he stays married to her. The Talmud, the Gemara, in Meseches Nadarim, very famously cautions a couple, both a husband and a wife, against living with a spouse that one despises and hates. The Gemara calls the children of such a marriage B'nai Snua, the children of somebody who's loathed and hated and always feels that it's really, it, it has very negative consequences when the emotions in a home are so negative and hateful and toxic. Either you change your attitude and people can't change their attitudes, people grow even if they can't change it overnight, but people can learn to grow and change their attitudes. Or sometimes one has to get out of the marriage, or should get out of the marriage. It's especially harmful, the Gemara says, for children of such relationships. Yet if Le- Yaakov really didn't like Leah, Kisnua Leah, very strong words, she's hated, she's loathed, she's despised, why did he decide to may stay married to her? Another question, of course, is Torah as we spoke many times, means a lesson. The word Torah means a teaching, a lesson. It's not just a book of history, it's a book of lessons. That's why we know so few stories about our fathers and mothers, our patriarchs and matriarchs. We don't know many stories, we know a few. 
The stories that are chosen are not just stories to tell us historical facts, but to teach lessons for history, for life. Torah is a blueprint, a map to navigate the turbulence of the world and the turbulence of the inner mind. What then is the lesson that the Torah is trying to provide to us with this story about how Yaakov felt towards Leah and Leah felt about this marriage, this relationship? I'm going to explore today with you four different interpretations. The interpretations span hundreds of years. The first comes from the 12th century. And here we really get to get a little taste of, you know, how Jewish scholarship develops over hundreds and really thousands of years. The first one will take us to province in southern France. It comes from the 12th century, the 1100s, 1100s. The second interpretation takes us to 17th century Morocco. The third interpretation takes us to 13th century Spain. And the final interpretation takes us to 18th century Belarus, or as it was known then as White Russia, Vice Rusland. So we'll go on a little journey today from province to Morocco to Spain to Russia. The first interpretation comes from the Radak. The Radak is one of the well-known commentators of the Tanakh. Radak is an acronym of Rabbeinu David Kimchi. He comes from a Sephardic family, meaning from a Spanish family, but his father, his parents escaped to France, to province, to southern France. That's probably where he was born or raised. He was born in the year 1160, and he passed away in the year 1235. And he is one of the well-known commentators of the Tanakh, the Radak. What he says, and you have it in the second, in your source sheets, right under the verses, the second, the second source. So here is what he says. He focuses in on a very interesting detail, but it's really a clue, like... All clues, they try to tell you something. We have a problem grammatically. If you take a look in verse 30, the first verse that we read together, together it said, gam Anybody who knows even basic Hebrew should get stuck because there's something off here. Vayav, he loved, gam esrochel, oso rochel. Whenever you say the word oso, it means that it's in addition to somebody else. So clearly the Torah says that he loved Leah because he loved oso Rachel. You're not going to say he loved oso Rachel if the first person was not loved at all. So it says, Vayav Gamas Rachel. So it sounds like he loved Leah and he also loved Rachel. The next word is me Leah. From Leah, or actually more than Leah, right? Vayav but then the gam is, is, is off. So he loved Oso Rachel, which means he loved Leah, but then you finish the sentence and you say, he loved Oso Rachel me Leah more than Leah. In Hebrew, that is a very, very awkward sentence. Not just awkward, it's inaccurate according to the laws of diktuk, of Hebrew grammar. The Radak says the Pasuk was written intentionally that way. It was written, so to speak, in a way that defies the laws of grammar in order to open you up to the meaning of what the Torah is saying. And I quote the Radak, 
to teach you that he also cherished and loved Leah. Even though he never chose Leah, on the contrary, he chose Rachel, and he was deceived at the night of her wedding, says the Radak, Kivan Shenisasloi. Since he did marry this woman, even though it was not premeditated, this was not part of the plan, it was not part of the dream. He loved her like a man, a functional, healthy man loves his wife just because the fact that they are married to each other, they are now bound together, they're living together. Nonetheless, there was a deeper appreciation for Rachel, because this is the woman that he chose. So the Torah is clearly saying that he loved Leah. It says, Vayav Gamis Rachel. In other words, Rachel was also beloved because Leah was beloved. Nonetheless, me Leah, Rachel was more than Leah because Leah he loved because he married her. They were now husband and wife. Rachel was the person he chose seven years before the wedding. Vayar Hashem Kisnua Leah. I, it says, Hashem saw that Leah was hated. Well, it's a very nice interpretation that Leah was also loved, but the next verse says Hashem saw that Leah was snua. Says the Radak, He gives her a very deep psychological observation. It doesn't mean that Yaakov hated her. Come on, how are you distorting the words? The truth is he loved Leah, but it says he hated her. But because he had a deeper affection for Leah, so therefore the Torah describes Leah as feeling hated. Because in contrast to the intense love of Rachel, there was a feeling of loathing, of hate. What the Radak is telling us is that sometimes you can love two people, but you love one more intensely than the other one. So in the contrast to that love, the second person feels not loved, but not as intense as the first one. The person feels that I am unloved. Because love, as we all know, is very, very intense. It's very messy, if I may use that word. Meaning it's, it's fiery, it's passionate, it's not mathematics. It's a very, very deep emotion. So the Radak is telling us that a person could love two people. Yaakov loved Leah and he loved Rachel. The Torah itself who's really not being bashful in this story at all, testifies to the fact that he loved Leah. But also Rachel. In fact, Leah he loved first because he was married to her first in terms of a husband and a wife, even though he he loved Rachel, obviously. Nonetheless, because she knew that there was a special connection with Rachel, so therefore the Torah could use the word snua. So what the Radak is teaching us is that the verb sonei, Snua, which we translate as hated, right? Vayisnuo, so they hated him. Usually means to hate. The Radak says in biblical Hebrew, it actually has a different meaning when it's contrasted with the verb to love. So the translation hate, the Radak says, is an inaccurate translation. In biblical Hebrew, in Torah Hebrew, when it's contrasted with love, it means something else. It doesn't mean hated, it means Loved less intensely. Loved less intimately. That's what it means. He cohabited with Rachel and he loved also Rachel more than Leah. And Hashem saw that Leah was hated. She wasn't hated. It says he loved Rachel more than Leah. Obviously he loved her too, but not as much as Rachel. She was less loved. There's obviously a profound lesson in this when it comes to family relationships. 
for example, between parents and children, mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law, or we shouldn't go there at the moment, mothers-in-law and sons-in-law, fathers-in-law and in-laws, generally familial relationships, close, intimate relationships in any form or fashion, that me loving one less than the other, less passionately, less intimately, even though I genuinely I like them, I even love them. It says, Vayav. Vayav is not just respect, it's actually love. He loved Leah. It says, Vayav, Gam es Rachel, which means he loved Leah. Nonetheless, the way it may be experienced and perceived by the recipient is not, you know, this person really cherishes me and loves me, but not as much. Rather, this person is not interested in me. This person hates me. So that's the observation the Radak is telling us. Actually, many, many generations later, the famous rabbi of Germany, Reb Shimshin Rafal Hirsch, who was the rabbi of Frankfurt am Main in Germany and passed away in 1888. That's the 19th century. So I guess following this trajectory, this line of thought of the Radak, even though I don't think he mentions the Radak, he says, it's obvious from the gam that the Torah wants you to know that Yaakov loved Leah as well, as the Radak points out, despite the fact of what her father did by deceiving Yaakov to marry Leah. And she was already an adult, so she had to be in cahoots with her father. But Rabbi Shimshin Rafal Hirsch suggests that perhaps she, just like Yaakov, was also a victim of her father's deception. And he says, because just as Lovin told Yaakov, it's immoral to marry off a younger one before an older one, he may have told that to Leah as well, that for her not to go into this relationship would be a complete deviation of the moral standards and norms and trusting her father. She herself fell prey to his deception and therefore Yaakov may have looked at Leah also as a victim of her father's deception, and perhaps not only that time, but for many, many years. So therefore, Reb Shimshin Rafal Hirsch feels that Yaakov could cherish Leah and love Leah. The Radak says, it's because a husband loves a wife. <laughs> An Adam Oyeves Ishtai, whether even in the case that it wasn't like Rachel that he chose. Reb Shimshin Rafal Hirsch says that he may have actually felt compassion for Leah, just as he felt for himself. So he loved perhaps Rachel more, but... Between the two, Leah was snua, and he also says it means ahuva pachas, less loved. And he says it's the same meaning in later in Parshas Kisavoy. I'm sorry, in Parshas Kisaitse. In Deuteronomy, the Torah says, Deuteronomy 21, Kisiena le'ish te nashim. Ha'achas ahuva, va'achas snua. If a man will have two wives, one is loved and one is unloved, and the second one has the oldest born, firstborn, and you think that you want to give the double portion to another child, and the Torah says you can't. There too, va'achasnua, he says, means the same thing like the Radak told us. Relative to the first one, it is snua. Let's go to the next source, Ur HaChayim. The Ur HaChayim, everybody knows, is Rabbeinu Chayim ben Atar. Rabbeinu Chayim ben Atar was born and raised in Morocco. One of, was one of the great holy men and sages of Morocco. He was born in 1696. Last, year, last week we spoke about Reb Moshe David Vali, who was born 1697. So Reb was one year older, different part of the world. Ramad Vali was in Italy, Reb was in Morocco. And then later he made Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael 
and live the remainder of his life in Jerusalem, in Yerushalayim, where the Erechayim HaKadosh is interred. He passed away 1743, Tovkov Gimel. And he also, of course, wrote a famous biblical commentary, printed in many Chumashim, Tradition has it that Erechayim would learn with his daughters, Chumash, and the explanations that he shared with his daughters during their lessons, he transcribed and it became the commentary of Erechayim. Dairachayim lived two centuries before Sigmund Freud. His real name is Schleimel Freud, but he's known as Sigmund Freud, who's considered the father of psychoanalysis. Freud died in 1939, right before the Second World War. He was a Viennese assimilated Jew who escaped Hitler to Britain, and that's where he died in the end of the late 30s. So Dairachayim, who lived in the late 1600s, as I said, passed away 1743, lived two centuries before Freud. I'm mentioning this because when you read the Rechayim, you find here an astonishing observation that 200 years before Freud, this type of thinking was not known in the secular world. And this is what the Rechayim says. Vayar Hashem kisnu I read the Rechayim now. Hashem saw that Leah was hated. Yechaven Leimar. What the Torah means to say is ki Hashem levada yada the only one who knew that Leah was unloved was Hashem. Nobody else did. he? She never knew this. She did not feel hated. What the Rechayim is saying is, nowhere does it say in the Torah that Yaakov loathed Leah, that Yaakov hated Leah. It doesn't say that. Nor does it ever say that Leah was hated, she felt hated. So the Rechaim says, it's not what it says, it's Hashem saw Kisnu Aleyah. Yaakov and Leah were unaware of the hate. Excellent question. I'm hated. Good, so what do you, know? the Rechaim didn't know those, so come you think. <laughs> good question, good question. Good question. Good, good thinking. But before we get to that, before we get to that. It's what we call today the subconscious, meaning a person can have a whole array of emotions towards someone and those emotions have an impact, but they're simply unaware of them. Now that is an astonishing observation of the Rechaim because sometimes these emotions may be too painful or too difficult to acknowledge. So I don't tell myself that this is how I feel. But it's exactly how I feel. The one who observes it is God. Vayar Hashem kisnu Leah. So if you would have asked Leah, is this the experience that you're having? No. If you would ask Yaakov, is this the experience that you're having? The Rechaim says, no. Yaakov said, me? I don't hate this person. And yet Hashem said that there's a deeper, unresolved, negative emotion that has not been dealt with. It's interesting. Just, I just came into my mind that we once spoke about this a few years ago, before Corona, that when, when Rivka sends Yaakov away, in the previous portion told us, she sends him away from his parents' home to go to Lavan. When this whole story begins, she says, you'll remain there for a few years, ad asher toshuv hamas until your brother's wrath subsides. Asaph wants to kill you for taking the blessings. 
when his ire subsides, you'll come back. That makes sense. In the next Pasuk, she repeats the same words, but a little differently. She says, Ad shuv af achicha mimcha. Until the anger of your brother goes away from you. So most commentators see it as pure redundancy, but very strange. You already said, till his anger subsides. It's clear. Why do you repeat again until the anger of your brother goes away from you, which is understood, till your brother stops being so angry? And why is it a new Pasuk? Even if she wants to repeat the same words, why a new verse? So there's three commentators who give a very different interpretation. Rabbi Yaakov David from Amshinov, the first Amshinov Rebbe, the Ksav Seifer, the son of the Ksav Seifer, the rabbi of Preshburg, today Bratislava, and Rabbi Itchel of Alajna, who was the rabbi of the great Lithuanian yeshiva, the rabbi of the city of Alajna, the Lithuanian yeshiva of Alajna, they all say that Rivka was telling him two different things. Ada Shatoshev Hamas till your brother's wrath subsides. How are you going to know that? When is that going to happen? What if it's eternal? So she adds, Until the anger of your brother goes away from you. Rivka was telling Yaakov, it's not just Esau who's angry at you. There are also unresolved issues that you have towards Esau, which is a startling revelation. Because when we read the story, you know, just black and white, it's like Esau is the bad guy, Yaakov is the good guy, Yitzchak is not aware of everything, Rivka is the practical you know, lionist, Mama Beer, who's not going to let anybody take anything from her son. And she just tells Yaakov, now run away, he's going to kill you. But suddenly we see here that there's a subtlety where Rivka says, you're going to have to also work out your own anger towards Esau. So following that trajectory here, the Erechayim talks about the fact that Yaakov is having feelings to Leah that he's unaware of. Obviously, we always have to qualify that we're talking here about Yaakov Avinu, who's on a completely different level than a regular human being. You're talking about the Avis who are Merkava. So obviously the way it has to be applied to Yaakov's level, but applying it more as a lesson to us, the way it's reflected in our own lives. The way it exists in Yaakov's life himself, you always have to understand it in a very subtle and refined and edel way. Not to uh, impose gross, uh, gross uh, definitions on people who, are, who, are tra- who transcend them. But nonetheless... There is something here that's being, that's being expressed that everyone can relate to on their own level, which is why the Torah teaches it. So, Vayar Hashem ki it was only Hashem who understood, who understood, who saw. When you say Hashem here, what does it mean, Hashem? Not just we're talking about God in heaven. We're talking about that inner knowledge that is infinite, the inner knowledge that is not eclipsed by the subconscious. That's what Hashem means, right? When you say, it's not just Hashem in heaven, it's Hashem inside of us. The God inside of you knows Snuwaleya. There's a part of you that knows what's happening. The divine part of you knows what's happening because it can't be, it's, it's not going to be eclipsed. Now you're asking a great question, so why does Leia talk about the fact? Kishama Hashem So the Rechaim continues, I'm just going to mention this briefly. The Rechaim says, isn't there something strange? The first boy, she says, should be Reuven, because now my husband will love me, right? The second boy, because God heard that I'm hated. One second. That should have been the first boy. First you get rid of hate, and then you go to love. You don't start with, okay, now you love me, now you won't hate me. First stop hating me, and then maybe one day you'll start liking me, 
right? It's very hard to start loving somebody when you hate them. So first, can we calm down the hate, the anger, the negativity? And then, but, but not what Leah does. So the Rechaim says it's exactly what happened. Leah wasn't aware of what's going on. Yaakov wasn't aware of what's going on. These are subconscious emotions. But Leah did see, obviously, that the relationship is not the same as Rachel. That's what the Rechaim finishes. There's no negativity. It's just that intense positivity is not there. So the first child, she says, With the next child, the Rechaim says, she came to discover that which lay embedded in Yaakov's heart and therefore also embedded in her heart. Now, what Erechayim, I think, is also teaching us in our own lives, what the Torah is teaching us, according to the prism of Erechayim, is sometimes people are engaging in behaviors. You're stonewalling somebody. You're uh, spacing out in somebody's presence. But this may just be a defense mechanism to the fact that I'm not ready to acknowledge the depth of the hurt or the depth of the pain, the loneliness, the anger that I may be experiencing, because it's not comfortable. So instead, I just space out. Or instead, I just become emotionally unavailable. I detach, because then there's no confrontation. I don't have to deal with these emotions. But sometimes these are very real things happening inside of me or inside of you that if I don't confront on any level, I'll never be able to cleanse myself from them. Now, we have to do it with appropriate uh, uh, sensitivity and respect, because sometimes in the name of honesty, a person can also be very self-destructive and also destructive to others. So one has to really have that support and mentorship of somebody who really wants you to be successful and to be happy and to do what is, what is good and right on every level, to guide us in these dark subcellar dark subcellars of our complicated psyche. But the Rechaim is teaching us a person has to be able to be aware, aware of this. Sometimes I just know that I'm triggered by something. I don't know why I'm triggered, but I'm just triggered by something. And therefore, I avoid it. Sometimes people blame it on, on Hashem, on religion. In other words, sometimes it becomes a religious issue of why I'm doing it. But all of these may be just camouflaging Something very basic, something very deep that I never confronted. I maybe I never had the help to confront. For Hamevin Yavin, there's a lot more to say about this, but I want to go to I want to go to the third level. Somebody once shared with me, this person is a very, very uh, idealistic person, really an idealistic person and a, a fine person. And uh, they were telling me about a certain relationship they had in their family, and it was they didn't know why it was very, very negative, extremely negative. And the person for many years maintained their theories about why, why this relationship was negative, and they gave it all types of spiritual interpretations. He said it was one day when somebody pointed out to him, maybe you're simply angry about something that happened at this and this point in your relationship. You're simply angry and you never forgave this person. And he told me, he says... I couldn't accept that I was such a petty person. I couldn't accept that I was angry. Me, how can I be angry at another person? I'm not that type of person. So for so many years he was in denial that because he's an idealistic person and he's a good person and he's a holy person, so therefore these emotions completely cannot be applicable to his life. But he was really backstabbing himself and the other person 
because he was not ready to confront what is actually going on inside of me. What am I feeling? What am I processing? And what I have to confront and deal with if I ever want to cleanse myself or at least be aware of what's going on so that it doesn't take control of me. Because here is the deal. When something is on a subconscious level, it controls me because I have no awareness of it. So even though I'm not aware of it, I think it doesn't exist. Really, it exists in a much more powerful way. Because if I'm aware of something, I can then make a choice. I could say, okay, this is what's going on, but now I'm going to make a choice to respond in this and this way. Which ultimately, after a while, can actually help cleanse it, or at least find some repair, some acceptance of it in one form or another, and maybe even extricate it, although not with a hammer and a nail, or a plier. You don't chase away darkness through sticks. <laughs> That'll never work. Nobody ever banished darkness through sticks and swords and spears and daggers. Not how you banish darkness. It has to be with, with compassion, with self-love, with sensitivity. But when I'm unaware of something, now it has full control over me. That's why there is so much resistance to awareness. The Yitzhahara doesn't want me to be aware, because the more I'm aware, the more choices I have. If I'm not aware, it controls me fully, and it uses deceptive measures to manipulate me into thinking that there's other wonderful good reasons why I am destined to be in this and this type, why I am destined to be trapped in this and this type of emotion. Let's go to the third interpretation. Here we go to one of the most famous commentaries of Chumash de Ramban, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman from Spain, known as Nachmanides. He was born in Girona, or Girona in Spain, in the year 1194. Was one of the greatest leaders of Spanish Jewry, besides being a rabbi and a sage and a commentator and a Talmudist and a physician and a doctor. And ultimately, at the end of his life, he was compelled to go to Eretz Yisrael because of his debate with Pablo Christiani, which he won, debate against Christianity. And over there in that era, if you won a debate, you lost a debate. And if you lost a debate, you certainly lost a debate. And the only thing that was worse than losing the debate was winning the debate, because that was an insult. So he had to leave and he moved to Yerushalayim. He still have the Shul of the Ramban. He passed away in 1270. The Ramban gives us a very straightforward interpretation, maybe the most literal of the above interpretations. We had the Radak, Shemshim Rafal Hirsch, following that we had the Erechayim, and now we have the Ramban. And the Ramban says that Yaakov was very hurt. Yaakov was very, very upset. And it was very hard for him to accept Leah. Let's see the Ramban. Leah ultimately followed her father's advice and was deceptive towards her sister. She took her sister's place. She also deceived Yaakov. Ramban says, I can understand that those days, this is not 2021, when Tati said to do something, you remember those days? You did it. Tati said, you're doing it, you did it. Right? Even in the Ramban's days, it was that way. So she was respectful towards her father. He held on to her, and he literally led her into the tent, and she would not betray and defy and rebel against her father. So what do you want from Leah? What do you want from Leah? Says the Ramban, I got it. But Yaakov felt, why didn't she say something? So you might say she couldn't say something because her father would 
Who knows what he would do? But the Ramban says, Lirmois, she could have hinted, she could have intimated to Yaakov that there is a scandalous deception going on. Af ki hoysam is nakeres kol halayla. Ulefichach lo yikira atshera oysa baboiker v'lechein sona Yaakov. But a whole night, she did not uh, display any hint that she was Leah. That's where the Torah says it was only in the morning when the sun begins shining and some rays, I guess, came into the tent that Yaakov recognizes it's Leah. She never intimated anything of this betrayal of her father. And that's why Yaakov felt so negatively towards Leah. He felt he was deceived by life. And Leah was certainly part of it, even if she didn't initiate it, even if she wasn't to blame, but she played along with her father. She did not have to, at least not to such an extreme, and therefore he feels negativity. Says the Ramban, but Hashem knows something else. That there was a reason for this. And that is, she yearned to be married to this tzaddik. And the alternative, as Rashi famously says, was Esav. So God had compassion for her. He understood that this is a sad story, a painful story. And he understood Yaakov's emotions, but he also understood Leah's emotions. Leah was in a very difficult situation. This is almost a dual tragedy. You know, you win if you do it, and you, you, it's any way you look at it, it's a tragedy here. What was supposed to be Leah's fate and destiny? was supposed to be a very different one. Leah yearned to choose a different life for herself. Yaakov felt betrayed, but Leah felt betrayed by other reasons. So the Ramban says, God understood all of these equations. And he had compassion for her. This is the the line of thinking of the sages in Medrash, in Medrash Rabbah Bereshus. The Medrash says, the Ramban quotes, Ayin Aleph Bey, section 71, chapter 2. The Medrash says that Yaakov actually wanted to get divorced because he saw that Leah deceived her sister, her sister. Rachel was supposed to have him and Leah had him. This is how the Medrash says it. He said, this is not going to work. Kivan Shapakta Kadesh Baruch when he saw that God gave her all these children, Omar, he said, Am I going to get divorced from the mother of these children? How can I do that? First of all, he loved these children. He saw the quality of the children, and he learned about Leah through the children. And what the Medrash here is describing is that type of marriage that may begin in a very complicated and negative way, but then the couple builds a family together. And that family, that unit living together just creates a new dynamic that nobody could have expected. Nobody goes into, you don't go into a marriage that way and it's going to work out when there's going to be kids. That's a very dangerous thing to do and very irresponsible in most cases. But in this case, where Yaakov was deceived and then he saw the results as they were happening and they were unfolding, he says, I can't destroy this family unit. I I know everything that happened. I know that I'm upset about what Leah did. But Yaakov saw a larger picture and he chose differently. And that's what the Torah means. It was God who orchestrated events in a way that Yaakov would not say goodbye to Leah. Because of Hashem's compassion, he knew that Leah was a special woman 
who was in herself in a very difficult, impossible situation. And therefore, Hashem orchestrated events that despite all the, pro- all the setbacks, the marriage would still, would still work out. This is the Ramban's reading of these verses. Uncomfortable story, the Ramban says. Yaakov is uncomfortable. Leah is uncomfortable. God feels the nobility of Leah. And he says, we're going to make this work despite all of the challenges. And interesting, generations later, there was a great rabbi in Krakow known as the Megala Mukas. The Megala Mukas, his name was Ribnosen Shapiro. Actually, on his tombstone in Krakow, it says something very rare that you ever read on a tombstone, that he learned Torah from the mouth of Elio Anavi. And we know that we're very meticulous what we write on tombstones because Anishama is held accountable to what they write on the tombstone. So people are careful not to exaggerate and dramatize things. But that's what it says. He passed away in the year Tuff, 1640. 1640, just eight years before the Chmelanetsky pogroms. Megala Mukas Parshas Vayeshev, he feels that this is the narrative that will pervade the rest of Sefer Bereshis. This story of Yaakov and Leah and Rachel will have its consequences throughout the story. The Megala Mukas says, following the Ramban. In other words, this story is at the vortex of the remainder of the Genesis drama. Hashvatim, the tribes, Kishero, when they saw, Ki when they saw that Yaakov loved Yosef more than the other brothers, this is of course two portions later by Yeshev, Chashu, they believed, they felt that Yaakov ultimately could not find real nachas, real delight in the children of Leah. For two reasons. They were Bnei Snua. They were the children of a woman he had a very difficult relationship with. Bnei Tmura. Bnei Tmura means children of a woman who was substituted. Because when he was together with, when he was with Leah the first night, he thought it was Rachel. So it was the mistaken woman. So this is what they felt perhaps, that the relationship with Yosef is just a continuation of the saga that happened that evening with Yaakov and Leah. Lachain vayisnu oisai. And therefore, they projected the same emotion. They loathed Yosef, feeling that Yaakov loathes them because they're children of Leah. So now they love Yosef, who is the oldest son of Rachel. Because they feel that because of him, they lost their father's affection. They lost their father's... They were blemished. They were blemished in the eyes of their father. Yosef is guilty because Yosef is the one who, who brings to the fore the fact that this family, there is priority. You know, there is someone special, Rachel versus Leah. And that's what they feel Yosef brought out from his father. And the Magala Mukha says, this was the source of their negativity towards, towards Yosef HaTzadik. Now, what we learn from the Ramban, again in our lives, and from what this Magala Mukhas is, again, I'm applying this to our lives, is, how difficult and messy relationships and families can be. You know, we often talk about dysfunction in families. Now, people don't like hearing this talk because for many years, the projection was, you know, that our family is perfect, right? Our families are perfect, especially when it comes to Shaduchim. Our families are perfect. And uh, the truth is, and you'll forgive me all, the only families I know that are perfect are the families I don't know. 
and there are many families I don't know, <laughs> or the fa- I should say the families I don't know well, because you know the real story of life is not perfection. You find me a family that's perfect, and the fact that they think they're perfect is probably a very profound imperfection, <laughs> and a lot of denial. Denial is not only a river in Egypt, it's part of people's lives. The journey of life is confronting my imperfections, confronting my wounds, confronting my, my, my mess, confronting the wilderness of the spirit, and then asking myself, you know, how do we create, how do we create meaning and how do we create truth and authenticity within, within this reality, within this life? And we do what we can of course, to repair, to fix, to make amends, to think of things differently, to change behaviors, to alter our neural pathways, to really tune into what is happening and try to create music from the violin chords that God and life has given us. And I think this, this Ramban and this Megala Mukais is a real, real testimony to this type of work. You know, Sefer Bereshus is all about our founding fathers, our founding mothers. It's where we all come from. Nobody could say that they're not part of this story. So this story impacts us all. And even though, again, we're talking here about the greatest of the great and the holiest of the holy and exactly how you have to explain it in their lives awaits profound and subtle explanation. But the application and the lessons to us, I think, are very obvious about our whole attitude to these types of things. There's a lot of stigma in our conversations, out of fear that I'm going to reveal too much about truth and authenticity. The most sensitive children in every family are the ones who are allergic to lies, they're allergic to cover-ups, they're allergic to deceptions. So they basically bring out to the fore what other people repress. So we get very upset at them because, you know, you're ruining, you're ruining everything. But one day when we mature and we become more divine, we become thankful to them for allowing us all to go on a journey into much deeper places, into ourselves. Anybody relates to what I'm saying? Okay, thank you. I don't want to feel like the only imperfect Meshuggah in this place. Okay. The day I got engaged, my brother gave me advice and he said, do me a favor, don't try to be perfect in your relationship because I know you. And your relationship is going to have a lot of flaws. The only thing I would suggest to you is be accountable in your relationship. Don't run away when there are mistakes. Don't run away when there are things unresolved. He said, people run away. Remain present in your imperfection. That is much, much deeper and more real advice than the advice of being perfect and never making a mistake because human beings are designed in a way that we fail, we error, we, we become unaware, we still have to grow up, we have to mature, we learn about things later on in life, and we all have a set of tools that are given to us by nature and nurture that we work with. And that set of tools always has to be reevaluated and expanded with the grace of our Father in Heaven. We now go to the fourth interpretation. Fourth interpretation comes from, as I said, 18th century Belarus. It's found in the writings of the first two Rebbes of Chabad, the Balatanya and his son, the Mittele Rebbe. The Balatanya, the author of the Tanya, Shachonar Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi, 
He was born in Lyozhna in Belarus, a little town, in 1745. That's two years after the Erechayim passed away. And he passed away in 1812, escaping Napoleon's army. Napoleon invaded Russia in 1812, and he didn't want to be under Napoleon, so he escaped to the Ukraine, where he passed away in Tavis. The last year of his life was Tovkov Ayin Bez, 1812. That's the year he passed away, the beginning of Ayin Gimel. And in a mimer that he said that year, Shabbos Vayetze, Tovkov Ayin Bez, that's 1812, it was actually the end of 1811, he revealed another dimension to this whole saga of Yaakov and Leia and Rachel. He had a son who succeeded him, known as the Mittler Rebbe, Rabbeinu Doivber, Rabbi Doivber, who in his discourses on Vayetzeh continued to develop and expand this idea of his father, the Balatanya. It's a stunning interpretation, no question. It's daring, it's creative, and it's really, uh, I think, also life-changing in many ways. At least that's how I see it. And I want to learn that. With, I want to learn it with you. It's a, it's a paragraph here in Hebrew, but I have to say, I hope you don't understand it. In other words, if you understand immediately what we're reading here, then I have failed as a teacher. Because it's, it's, ext- it's extremely nuanced, it's extremely uh, profound, and the language is also very mystical and transcendent. We have to demythologize the abstract language. But we're going to tr- we're gonna try, Be'ezer Hashem, to bring it down and apply it at least to some limited degree, at least some of the points that are being conveyed. In order to appreciate what the Balatanya teaches about the story, we have to remember a teaching of the Zohar about Leia and Rachel. Every personality in Chumash, when you study them from the perspective of Pnimiyas Atayra, which means the way it's explained in Midrashim, in Kabbalah, in Hasidus, in works of Machshava and Ashkafa, are not just physical people who lived at a particular time in history, even though it's also that. But they also represent qualities and dimensions of the human psyche that exist constantly within the human being. This is also true about Leah, and it's also true about Rachel. So Leah and Rachel are not just two sisters, but the Zohar says, and I quote, that Leah is Alma de Iskasia, and Rachel is Alma de Isgalia. That's what the Zohar says. The Zohar, of course, is the foundational text of Kabbalah. Alma de Iskasia means the hidden world. Alma de Isgalia means the revealed world. And the Zohar even says that's why Leah is buried in a cave, because she's the hidden world. And Rachel was not buried in a mire. It says that Yaakov buried her on the road, and the tombstone is on top. Cave Rachel is on top. So the Zohar says, because Rachel represents from all the Imais, Alma de Isgalia, the revealed world. What does this mean? One way of explaining it is, Rachel represents the conscious self, the revealed world. If I were to ask you, please describe yourself to me. I mean an authentic description, not just a resume for an office, which may also be authentic, but may be a little more external. But I mean a real, you know, talk about yourself in a real way, in a pneumatic way, in an authentic way. I'm talking about somebody you trust, obviously. A person will tell you a lot of very interesting things about themselves that many people don't know. Your thoughts and your feelings and your emotions and your dreams and your disappointments and your setbacks and your failures and your victories and your triumphs and your aspirations, your past, your present, what your hope is, your future, perhaps your childhood, your teen years, your earlier years, etc. Anything about a person's life. 
That's Alma de Isgalia. It's the self that is projected to me. It's what's happening in my brain in a very conscious way. Every single moment, people are thinking about something, right? Even now you're thinking about something. I hope it's what I'm talking about, but not necessarily, right? Because everybody has a lot on their plate. <laughs> so there's a lot going on constantly in our emotions, in our minds. Some people are more self-aware. Some people are less self-aware, which is sometimes a blessing. Uh, but the fact is that any level of self-awareness is about my projected self, it's manifested, it's expressed, it can be articulated in language. The Zohar says Rachel is connected to speech, and Leah is connected to the world of hidden thoughts. Whatever can be articulated in language is something that I come to terms with. I can talk about it, I can categorize it. If not, I can't talk about it. So the fact that I speak about it is already, it's my conceptual, my conceptualized dimension of self. It's the way the self is a concept that I can think about, I can articulate, I can cry about, I can laugh about, I can share. Leah is Alma de Iskasia, the hidden world. She represents the unconscious self, or if you wish, or if you will, the superconscious self. A self that is also existing, but it's just beyond my conscious articulation of it. It's the components of my identity that are hidden from the surface, not just from other people's surfaces, even from my own brain's surface. It's, it's hidden from my own conscious expression. It's beyond my conceptualized sense of self. You know, when I look and I ask myself, who is Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson? I have a lot of answers for that. I also have a lot of questions. <laughs> why? Why? Right? It's a lot of questions. <laughs> but as deep as I go, there's something I'm conceptualizing. I'm using my brain to try to figure things out. This is who I am, this is who I'm not. People sometimes spend a lifetime trying to figure that out. But we all know there's Leia. Leia is a whole hidden world, Alma de Escasia. It's beneath the surface. Completely beneath my own surface and beneath our surface, each one in their own way. So every person has a Rachel and a Leia. In each one of your children, there's a Rachel and Leia. In your spouse, there's a Rachel and a Leia. Hooray! As though you didn't know that. In every person we encounter, there's a Rachel and there's a Leah within ourselves and our children, our parents, our siblings, our friends, within our entire lives. And of course, our experience with Hashem also operates on two levels. In Kabbalah, there's something called Tikkun Rachel and Tikkun Leah, Tikkun Chatzois. In Sidurim that have together the prayers we say after midnight for the Gula, for Mashiach, there's something called Tikkun Rachel and Tikkun Leah. Tikkun Rachel are the prayers associated with Rachel, and Tikkun Leah are the prayers associated with Leah. So Rachel always represents those dimensions of my identity that I could make sense of. Because it's Isgalia. It's revealed, it's articulated. I can wrap my brains around them. I can somehow become comfortable with them, even if they're a little complex, or maybe they're a lot complex. But that itself becomes part of my artistic journey and experience. You know, some people are very proud of the fact that they're complicated. They think like somehow to be complicated is a great achievement. I mean, if you are, you just are. But you know, some people are very proud of the fact that they're complex, they're complicated. But even if that's the case, I can articulate, I can wrap my brain around it. So Rachel represents those aspects of myself or my spouse or my child or somebody else in my life that I can comprehend, I can grasp, 
I can appreciate, and therefore I could somewhat control also. Because that which I understand, that which I can talk about, I have a little control over. Because I get it. You know, when you get something, it's like, okay, so this is how you deal with it. This is how you don't, how you don't deal with it. So Rachel represents those aspects of your children that you get and you're comfortable with. Sometimes they may be difficult. Sometimes they may be very enjoyable. They may bring one type of nachas or another type of nachas. But I feel like I have some, some control, some shlita. It's the part of myself or of my loved ones that I can categorize, I can classify, I can see the patterns, I can see the structures. It's the parts of my psyche that I have come to terms with. Leah, OMG, hyphen, represents the components of my spouse or myself that challenge me, that I don't have, in, in Yiddish it says, I don't have it. It may be completely hidden, so I don't even know about it. But that which is more hidden comes out. It just comes out in very different ways. It doesn't come out in ways that I can grasp and articulate. It's sometimes those aspects of our children that challenge us and force us to reevaluate ourselves in ways that we never had to. It's those children that compel us to reevaluate our parenting our very identities, our conceptualized sense of self. Leia is a vista into a self that I can't conceptualize. It doesn't fit into my box, even my intellectual or spiritual box. It's the dimensions of my identity that I may have repressed, I may have suppressed, and therefore access to them triggers me in very, very profound ways. Leia represents the parts of me that I cannot easily make sense of. I cannot wrap my brain around it. It shocks my conscious brain. Now, bear with me. We're going to read inside. Okay? Don't try to understand this, please. Don't try to wrap your brain around it. If you try to wrap your brain around it, you're defeating the purpose. You know the person who went into Barnes & Noble? And they go to the person behind the desk, the woman behind the desk, and he says, can you please tell me where the self-help section is? She says, well, if I tell it to you, it will defeat the purpose. So I'm going to ask you to please not wrap your brain around what I'm saying. (laughs) You just got it? It's a good one, no? Yeah. So that way you can actually get it much more. (laughs) Okay, so take a look. I'm going to read fast and translate. Just hear the words. And Be'ezer Hashem, when we finish reading it, we'll be able to uh, make at least a little more sense of it. Teres Chaim. Maimer V'Rachel. Teres Chaim L'Admur Hem Tzoyi V'Yetze Maimer V'Rachel Hoysel Yifas Tayer. Achinei Me'ata Yashlo'avin. Why didn't Yaakov want to work for Lavan for Leah, who's, who's older than Rachel? And why didn't he love Leah like Rachel? The answer. The root of Leah is a concealed world. It's a world that is eclipsed. It's a world that is wondrous. It's a world that's extraordinary, profound. It's beyond 
the level of Yaakov. Shehubchin is Hamidos. Yaakov represents the Midos, which are a person's deep, conscious, powerful emotions and motives. Shehaseichel v'tam musagsham b'murgashai spilas v'tuv It's emotions that a person can articulate. Why I appreciate these things. Why I love these things. The, the ideas behind these emotions are felt. B'murgash, in a very conscious way, I understand the beauty of this idea and therefore of these emotions. He's describing here, last week Dr. Aaron Beck died. He was a Jew, he was 100 years old. He's the founder of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, CBT. He passed away at 100. He revolutionized this idea. All emotions are preceded by thoughts. There's no emotion that's not preceded by thought. I never get emotional because of what you said to me. I get emotional because of how I processed what you said to me. Now, it's not, we don't go there. Of course not. I get emotional because of you. But that's not true. Nobody ever gets emotional about anybody else. They only get emotional because of how they think about somebody else. So change your thoughts. Change your feelings. Change your mind. Change your find. Poetry. So that's the concept of Yaakov. Yaakov knows his emotions based on certain ideas that are very rich. But that's not where reality ends. That's why cognitive therapy is, is amazing and very helpful, but it doesn't help for trauma, it doesn't help for all traumas, because there are other parts in people's psyches that my changing my thoughts will not help. I'm just showing you this contrast we're now going to learn about, how it's manifested in contemporary, uh, in contemporary psychology. So he says, Words. Therefore, Yaakov did not recognize and he couldn't understand Leah because she was above him. There was something in Leah that transcended Yaakov's ability to capture, to conceive, to understand, and therefore to appreciate. In parentheses, he says, This is called Pnimius Bina, the deepest ideas that are at the core of your comprehension, which has not been articulated in your own understanding, and therefore you cannot have conscious emotions from it yet. Because... It's not something that you really grasp. And because you didn't grasp it, you can't have conscious emotions. Yaakov is conscious divine emotions that come from the ideas and thoughts that he really understands. But Leah is an idea that still eludes him. It transcends him infinitely. And therefore, you can't emote from it because it's too profound. I can't, I can't grasp it. I emote from thoughts that I get. Hopefully they're not distorted. But here we're talking about divine thoughts, divine emotions, Yaakov's emotions. In Kabbalah, Yaakov is called Zah. He's a reflection of Hashem's Midas. Ukiyadua. And here is what's known. I love this next line. The Chaldavar hanifla v'nela mena asaga. Shalayucha lachiloi klal. Ein loy avo uchuka elav klal uklal ufishalayucha lahasigoi v'lid baigbay. Anything that I can't understand... Something that I cannot contain, I cannot control, I cannot grasp, I cannot wrap my brain around it. I cannot love such a thing. I cannot desire such a thing at all. You know why? 
because it's not feeding my eye, it's not feeding my conceptualized sense of self. I cannot receive life from it, conscious life from it. Because it's so concealed. It's exactly to the contrary. Not only do I not love it, I will often begin hating it. I will often begin despising it because it's so beyond me and the pleasure will become a source of pain. What is really a source of infinite pleasure becomes a source of such profound pain. What he's teaching us here is people hate what they don't understand. It's too scary. It's too overwhelming. It's too shocking. I love you if I can understand you. Because then there is control. My brain is conditioned. I have to survive. And I have to be intact. And if I can't understand you, what do I do? I have to dismiss you. So sometimes I could say, you're crazy. That works. I don't have to hate you. You're Meshuggah. But sometimes you're not. So what do I do? <laughs> I, just, I, I hate you. I hate it. It's not I hate you. It's personal. The person may have not done anything. But there's something here that is, is confronting me with something that's too overwhelming. It's too startling. So not only can't I love it, but sometimes it's causing me pain. Because it's touching upon a deeper level of reality that I'm not open to. So I have to resist it in order to be able to cope. In order to continue cultivating my survival skills. I have to survive. So I have to push it away because you're going to confuse things. You're going to open things that I don't open. You're going to open shopping bags and suitcases and closets that we sealed many, many millennia ago or centuries ago or decades ago. I may have sealed it when I was four, when I was five, when I was six. I can't go back there. It's too much. I close it up. And now you are digging away. You're chopping away at that space. There's too much resistance. So how does it translate emotionally? I'm allergic to this. I don't know, but I just can't deal with this. So what is the hate really coming from? The hate is coming from because I was just exposed to something I so desperately need to heal. Something that I was not ready to deal with, and therefore I'm resisting it. So the hate is actually a sign of a connection but a connection that I can only cultivate if I reinvent myself. And who wants to do that? <laughs> you need time, you need mental space. Mela, but the level of humility and vulnerability that you need. That's why I said, Leah, oh my God, OMG. And he says further, he says, Alderich Marshall, a Marshall, a metaphor. Adam Shemaskil. I'll give you an example, he says. Sometimes people hear a class and they understand everything that they're learning. It makes sense, and it's beautiful. 
It's really nice. It's stimulating. It's enriching. He says, you're learning something and you really get it. It makes sense. There's a geschmack. It's like eating something that has a delicious flavor and your taste buds love it. And you want to learn more. He says, it's so pleasurable and it gives you vitality and it's conscious. And the more you eat it, the more you get it, the more you grasp it. In fact, the word in Hebrew for flavor, tam, is the same word for reason, right? You ever realize tam is a flavor, right? Tam, it has a tam. It doesn't have a tam. The supatnish can tam, yeah? Tam also means a reason, like a tam. What's the tam for this? What's the connection? You understand why? When something has a reason, it's reasonable, it's flavorable. You all know that there are certain foods, yeah? that are so subtle, they say you have to develop a taste, yeah? You know, like kale, celery, right? Soybeans, potato chips, nobody has to develop a taste towards. Black and whites, rugelach, cheese danishes, lasagna. Nobody develops, a, nobody has to work on developing a taste. Well, some people, healthy, edelah people. But then some things, you have to develop a taste. There's no tam. You say there's no tam. So sometimes there's no tam kaka because the chef didn't know what they were doing. He says, sometimes you come across an idea that is so profound and there's no way you're going to get it. There's no way you could master it, control it, wrap your brain around it. So he says, you know what happens? It's not just you say, okay. He says, you actually develop a negativity towards it. You don't want it. He says, it becomes like a heavy burden. Somebody puts a washing machine on my shoulders. Get it out of here. Why? It's too much. It's too heavy. You're, you're, you're rattling my equilibrium. Did I just invent a sentence? Huh? It, it, it's too much. It's heavy. It's heavy. Give me something light that I can hold on to. This is too heavy. So what do I do? I dismiss it. V'zehu kisnua leya. That's what it means. Leia was hated. Shehu almede iskasya. Leia opens up Yaakov to a hidden world. Shehu behelam amachshava. Your secret thoughts. Your unconscious thoughts. Your deeper thoughts. Which you can't have a conscious positive emotion towards. Shenikra seichel hanelam ikol rayan machshava stima. Leia's behelam vaafla. She was so concealed and so wondrous. Alkein hoysa snua gamla achashinisislai. Even after he married her, even after he's in this relationship, she's in front of your eyes. There is too much resistance. That's why in the beginning, it's not Leia that he desires. It's not something you gravitate to. Because I gravitate to things that are based on my conceptualized sense of self. But something that challenges my conceptualized sense of self, why would I want it? Even after he's in a relationship with her, it doesn't get better. It gets more difficult. Now there is negativity, like, this is too much. Rachel is the revealed world. It's where thoughts come out into words. It's conscious. It's experienced. The light of ideas and emotions come out in the most revealed sense that there's a flavor, there's an appreciation. Rachel is yifas toyev yifas mara. Rachel is beautiful. It's not just physical. Rachel is that part that it's so beautiful, it's compelling, it's so appealing. It's attractive because 
It's something that sits well with me. It vitalizes me. gives me more chiyos. It gives me more energy. Leia, the Balatanya writes, in Hebrew, comes from the word leut, which means exhaustion. Who names a daughter exhaustion? That's not a nice name. It says in Chumash, V'nilu Mitzrayim, Lishtas Manah. Egyptians will get exhausted. Nilo inilaisi. These are words in the Tanakh. Exhaustion. Leia means exhaustion. Rachel is? What's Rachel? A sheep, a you. A sheep is a very serene animal, right? Animal therapy. The first animal they have children deal with is a sheep. It's serene. It's tranquil. You know what the numerical value of Rachel is? 238. And there was light. Rachel is the light. Leah is the deeper light, which translates as darkness. What's higher? Yitzir or Voire? Yitzir is lower than Voire. So it should be Yitzir Chayshach or No. The darkness of Voire is much higher than the light of Yitzir. The reason it's dark is because it transcends my eye's ability to see, to perceive. So what is the Mittler Rebbe telling us here? People recoil from that which they cannot wrap their brains around. It's too humbling to say, you don't have to wrap your brain around reality, especially for Ashkenazic cerebral Jews. I need to understand. And my whole life I was trained. Fashtain, fashtain. You want to understand. But I fear that which I can't conquer. I loathe that which I can't control. I appreciate, love, and cherish that which I can assimilate into my identity, into my modalities, into my boxes, into my structures. So when I face a reality that defies my comfort zones, what do I do? I lash out, I attack, I denigrate. Or if I'm not so aggressive, I don't explode, I implode, right? I lash out at myself. Maybe I tell myself, here's another one, I'm stupid, I'm ridiculous, I'm never going to get it, which again is depriving you of a relationship. Just like when you say, get out of my life, I don't want to hear these words, they're foolish, when I also say, I'm dumb, I'm stupid, I'll never get it. That's also a way of running away from a relationship. It's also a defense mechanism. You know when a kid says, I'm too stupid for school. That's not humility. It's, it's horrible pain. It's giving up. There's no, there's no hope for me. It's another response. It's the other side of aggression. It's running away. It's spacing out. It's detaching. I don't want to get aggressive, but I just space out. I can't deal with this. I smile. I change the subject and I go eat. Or whatever my distraction is. I'm just talking about me. I'm not talking about you. Things that rattle everything I have come to know about myself. Now, I have to say something else. Not everybody gets to meet Leia during their lifetime. I think somehow in the last few years, God is almost forcing everybody to meet their Leia. And that's why people are wondering, what, what happened in the last few years? Why, what, where is the anxiety coming from? The anxiety is coming from Welcoming Leia into your life. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's what you have to... That, 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 that question, I can't answer. I can answer it for me, I can't answer it for you. So Rachel is Yifastar, Yifastmara, as they translated in English, Rabbi Kaplan. Her physique, her countenance is beautiful. In other words, 
we get Rachel. We look at Rachel and we say, Agishmak, valedictorian. Bais Yaakov, Bais Ruchel, Bais Sora, Bais Rivka, Bnoisian, Nevei Bruria, Shulamit. And I'm sorry if I missed out some of them. Did I get them all, Mrs. Klein? But most of them. Okay. She suits our comfort zones. She's perfect on the resume. She's the greatest girl who ever lived in the century. And you know what? She enhances our lives. She's a beautiful you. Vayihi or she is light. The you has usually bright white colors and is lovable in nature. She projects the beautiful divine light. Rachel is an extraordinary woman. Rachel is the woman who reveals Hashem's light in this world. Leah is the woman, Leah is the person. Leah embodies an infinite depth. Infinity means it's no box. It's infinite, it's ain't safe, it's limitless. When infinity comes into my life, what happens? If I remain in my modalities, I have to reject it. I have no choice. I'm normal. Don't freak out at yourself for freaking out. Of course you freak out. Thank God. You have good survival skills. You have good coping skills. It perplexes me. Leia perplexes me. Leia confuses me, overwhelms me. It rattles my conscious psyche. Leia has no filter. I don't mean Leia the person had no filter. I don't know about that. Me person of Leia, the concept of Leia is no filters. And therefore, nobody sees Leia. We're just made uncomfortable by Leia. Rachel we see. Leia's light we don't see. It's beyond us. But we know that she rattles us. You can't see your unconscious. You know why? Because if you see it, it's not your unconscious. What I see is what my finite eye can grasp. I can get shaken by it because I could never have it. It has me. Almadis Galia I can have. Almadis Kasia has me. Now we hit the pinnacle. How do you meet Leia in your life? And the answer is you can't meet Leia consciously. If you choose to meet Leia, it won't be Leia. Why? That which I prepare for, that which I dream for, that which I want is always a reflection of my expectations, of my aspirations, of my dreams. So I can't choose to meet Leia. Because if I choose to meet Leia, it's not Leia. So now look at the next paragraph. That's why Yaakov's marriage with Leah was unconscious, not with Das. Because Leah is that which transcends Yaakov's awareness. So if you tell Yaakov, come, meet Leah, get to know Leah, look forward to it, this is what's going to happen. It won't happen. That which I'm looking to meet is always a reflection of how I know myself, how I understand myself. Yaakov can't enter into a relationship with Leah by choice. Leah always surprises us. Leah always shocks us. Leah always reveals to us our superconscious, 
my conscious self is not going to agree to that relationship. If my conscious self would agree to that relationship, it's not my superconscious self. It's not my infinity. So Leia represents the parts of me that I don't know in a systematic way. Maybe I have been avoiding it my whole life. So how does it enter my life? It enters my life not through Das. It enters my life unconsciously. How do I encounter Leia? We call it in English a mistake. It was a mistake. What was it really? It was really my unconscious self yearning to see itself in the mirror. It was that which is higher than my Das yearning to connect with that that it is really connected to, that it really relates to. Things that transcend my system enter into my life always through unconscious pathways. These are relationships I build, not realizing what I'm doing. These are encounters I initiate. These are things that happen in my life. I call them curveballs. I call them insanity. I call them crazy stuff. They don't let me sleep at night. But if I really get it, then I realize I don't have to get it. I can open myself up. I don't need my brain to control it. And then I can allow myself growth into an infinite space that my das doesn't have to control. And I can let go of the resistance that I had all this time because I was afraid that I'm going to melt in the process and I really discover a self that is beyond self, an infinite self. So Yaakov can't agree to marry Leah. You can't get him to. You could talk to him for a thousand years. It just doesn't happen. If you agree to it with your das, it's not what you need. It's not what God wants to give you here. Leah defies my very sense of I. How can my I choose Leah when Leah defies my I? My conceptualized I cannot go there. Sorry, it's a contradiction. My conscious I will not go there. It's the superconscious self that chooses Leia in an, in, in an unconscious way because that's where I will discover my real self. That's where I will grow most. That's where I will transcend my finite self into my real divine self. So what happens is as follows. Yaakov chooses to marry Rachel. That's what you're supposed to do. You love Rachel, you cherish Rachel, you meet Rachel, you want to be with Rachel. In the process, he marries Leah. Only then will he marry Rachel a second time. What does this mean? What this means, the Balatanya is saying, is this. Each of us marries two people. I don't mean physically. Each of us marries, and I don't even mean married people only. Married people too, of course. <laughs> Marriage brings it out very, very, uh, in a very manifest way. But this is true about every relationship. We marry two people. We marry Leah. We marry Rachel. Our conscious self marries our conscious spouse. Yaakov marries Rachel. Hopefully, Bezer Hashem, it's amazing, it's astounding, it's beautiful. It has its ups and downs. <laughs> Rachel is Rachel, Yaakov is Yaakov in every relationship, but your conscious self married your conscious spouse. There's another marriage that happens. That marriage that happens is a very different marriage. 
my unconscious self marries my unconscious spouse. I can't choose it. Because if I tell the Shatchan, you know, I think it's really working out. <laughs> you're not in that zone. You're in Amadis Galia, which you should be. But there's another process that happens on a level that's Lamailam in Hadas. It happens in the middle of the night, in the dark, and I couldn't prepare for it. Because if I could have prepared for it, it's not that. My unconscious, my superconscious self marries my superconscious spouse. One spouse we love. The second spouse challenges us. The first spouse I'm comfortable with. It's almost like you're an extension of me. I'm an extension of you. Right? What do they say? Two peas. How do they say it? Uh, two halves of a whole. Two halves of a whole. Two peas in a You come to the Lachaim, you come to the Chasana. Two peas in a bay. They already look like each other. You know the Yentas by the Sheva Brachas? They look like each other. They finish each other's sentences. Okay, I would wait a few years, but fine. The unconscious self that met the unconscious spouse is challenged. The conscious self now feels rattled. Leah is not easy to love. Why? Not because of her inferior qualities, but because of her infinite depth. Leah is my vista into infinity. And that requires tremendous inner work, vulnerability. We call it bittal. Stripping myself away from the protective layers, the bullet vests, the gears that I put on on myself to learn how to define myself and open myself up to that which is beyond us. Yaakov understands this. Or to put it more accurately, Yaakov understands that this is something you don't understand. And that's what it means he understands this. Yaakov understands this is not something you control. So what happens? He learns to appreciate, respect, and love Leah. It's not an easy journey. It's a complex process. In fact, most of his life, who does he live with? Leah. Rachel passed away very young. Who is he buried with? Leah. Leah. 3,600 years, Yaakov is with Leah, not with Rachel. What happened? That's like a double tragedy. But let's now apply it to our lives. Those aspects in your life that you're running away from most may contain your deepest healing, may contain my deepest healing. Those aspects in my spouse or in your spouse that often challenge me, irk me, trigger me, sometimes hold the secret to my recovery. They hold the secret to go beyond the superficial, beyond the surface, and discover what is really happening. Those aspects in your relationship that challenge the deepest emotions in you may contain the key to ultimate self-discovery. Now, I should always say this. Sometimes we hate things, Because they're bad for us. But not always. Sometimes we hate things because we're scared of their truth. You have to know the difference. Sometimes I hate things because I'm allergic to them. And it's a good thing that you know what you hate. But sometimes you hate that which is too good. Too real. Too authentic. 
too vulnerable, too divine, but I can't control it with my brain and it's shocking my system. Maybe I can't open myself up to unknown horizons. Maybe it makes me feel ignorant, and I don't want to feel ignorant. Maybe it makes me feel vulnerable. I don't want to feel vulnerable. Maybe it makes me feel how much growth I need. I don't want that. Maybe it makes me feel that I really have to work on myself. I don't want that. Maybe it's touching something that I have held, I have hidden so long because I feel that if that comes out, I'm going to die. My image will die. And I cannot afford that. I'm sorry. I have to hate you because the alternative is death. Anybody knows what I'm talking about? If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I don't want to say Baruch Hashem, but then you don't know what I'm talking about. It's fine. We don't want to be forced to go to places that we have repressed. And Leah does just that, and that's why she's called exhaustion. She makes me exhausted because she makes herself exhausted because she comes from a place that can be very exhausting until we learn that that is where ultimate emancipation is. That's where where ultimate liberty is. So if you look at the end of the whole story, at the end of the whole story, how does it end? Uh, Not the end. Pasek Lamaral. Shockingly. Vayar Hashem kisnu aleyah vayiftach esrachmu virochel akarah. Hashem saw Leah was hated. He opened her womb. Rachel was barren. What is that supposed to mean? It's a shocking statement. It's often that things that we are afraid of, people we are afraid of, relationships and truths that we are afraid of, the Hashem that we can't fit into our comfort zone, that relationship with Hashem that we call mistakes, curveballs, it's beyond das. I never planned for this. I never expected this. This is not how my family was supposed to look. This is not what my marriage was supposed to look like. This is not what my career was supposed to look like. It's all beyond das. This is not what my life coach told me I'm good at. But it's that relationship with that that I am so afraid of that allows me to give birth to my deepest soul powers. By surrounding myself only with things and people that make me feel in control, I remain barren. I remain infertile. There's no new birth. I just follow a very finite fixed mantle. Birth is about eternity. Binyan adei ad. Dor yusharim. Ad saif It's eternity. It's why through marriage that there can be procreation. Because when I'm on my own, I may be a perfect bachelor, but I'll never touch infinity. It's by the relationship with somebody else who's different, who's Rachel and Leah, that I learn Ein Saif. That's why the whole system of the cosmos is that the male and the female need unity to create a new generation. Not just by people, by the whole animal kingdom. Even in the world of botany, by trees. If there's no male and female zivug, there can't be procreation, because procreation is about infinity. It's about Ein Saif. So if I surround myself with people that are yes-sayers, that I feel comfortable, my infinity never emerges. By exposing myself to the unknown, I give birth to infinity. What is more, to marry Rachel, you first have to marry Leah. Because you could never love your Rachel if you did not make peace with your Leah. It's only when I can embrace my Leah that I can really, really also make peace with my Rachel. Because if not, my peace with Rachel is hiding something. 
it's resisting something. It's like, it's too much energy. It's like I'm going like this, but I'm also pushing something away. It's too much. I can't really, I can't really embrace. It's only when I make peace with Leah that all the pieces can become one. And that's why ultimately Rachel passes away. Spiritually what that means is that the sisters converge. In other words, the image of your spouse only as Rachel dies. The image of my child only as Rachel, you know, picture perfect, it dies away with time. Rachel and Leah really spiritually become one because the two are really the oneness of life which is part of the oneness of Ein Saif. They're not really two. They're just two in my fear, in my, in my stubbornness to hold on to my systems. I create a duality. There's no duality. There's oneness. Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. So when I could make peace with Leah, I can make peace with Rachel. So now I want to finish with this last paragraph in Hebrew. In the last of your sources, my Mari Admura Zokin Tovkuf Ayin Beis, my Mirachal Haisi Yafas Torah Nusach Sheni, eighteen twelve. VeYakov Loi Hisig B'Shoyrish Leia BeBina Eimabunim. Yakov did not comprehend the root of Leia, who is Bina, the deepest understanding, the mother of all children. Al Kain Amar Evod Chazayin Shanim BeRachal. So he wanted Rachel Shaya Savor. He thought Shatul the Mehelam Elagili Ene Elaide Rachel Pchinas Adibur. The only way you could get things actualized is through Rachel. She's the world of speech. And Yaakov is about revelation. That means when he married her, he didn't know her. He Pasha didn't know his wife when he married her. Under that chuppah, in that tent, he didn't know her, only the next morning. What does that mean? Because she transcended his spiritual level. The only way he can marry her is in a way that he doesn't know who she is. She transcends the perception of Yaakov. The only way he could become one with her, he can have intimacy with her, is... <coughs> in a way that his das is not present. <laughs> his conscious self is not here. It's not part of this relationship. It's happening on a completely different level. Yaakov and Rachel's unity is only through das. That's the first marriage. Adam, you have to know who your wife is. You have to know who your husband is. Adam Then there's a relationship that happens. So therefore... Only Baboiker. Suddenly there was a light, a new light that comes into his life. And and Vihine Hileya. If you wanna if you wanna see the intricate beauty of Torah, <laughs> Purim is the one time a year that the Chachamim say you have to get inebriated, ad the loyada. You shouldn't know. Arhaman, it's a little bit of a strange mitzvah. Okay, it's only once a year, but still. Why should you not know? It's good to know, no? It's good to know. Knowledge is power. Know thyself, Plato said. But here's the deal. If you look in the Megillah, Esther told Mordechai, I can't go to Achashverosh. If I go, he's going to kill me. He hasn't invited me for 30 days. So Mordechai said to her, don't think you're going to be saved if you deny that you're a Jew. They're going to catch up to you as well. The SS will find everybody, and the Gestapo will kill you too. That's number one. 
Don't become, don't think you're going to escape your people. Don't deny your Jewishness. Then he says, number two, God will find a way to save the Jews, even if you refuse. But you and your house might perish. Then he adds his last words, Who knows if this is not the reason you became a queen? So the question is, why didn't he speak in more convincing, absolute terms? I'm the leader of the Sanhedrin. I could tell you that this is the reason God wanted you to become the queen. He doesn't say that. He says, Mi idea, who knows? Which sounds like, who knows? Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe not. The pshat is, this is what he was telling her. After everything said and done, Esther is wondering, how do I fall in to such an insane environment? And Esther was like, find a good Yiddish with her plans of building a beautiful Jewish family and everything that a Jewish girl dreams of. How how a shikid a Persian Meshuganagoy? Mardachai told her something very deep. Mi idea. There are things, relationships, journeys, missions that you will not figure out through your conscious mathematical brain. If you would go to a life coach, Esther, and say, what career should I choose? He wouldn't tell you, become a Hashemish's queen. It's not on that level. It's mi idea. It's coming from a place that's deeper than das. This is a mission of God that he put you into this place and you're not going to be able to fulfill it if you think it's going to work out logically. That triggered in Esther the Adeloyada. That's when she met her own Adeloyada. And from that moment, she's a transformed person. And she saves the Jewish people single-handedly. It's not even called Megillus Mordechai or Megillus Mordechai of Esther. He was behind the scenes. He motivated her. It's called Megillus Esther because it was her. She did it. So when the Chachamim had to say, how do you celebrate Purim? What do they say? Adeloyada. You have to go to a place that's beyond us. That's what Yaakov encountered here at this moment. Have a wonderful week. My name is Leah, so now I'm really totally confused. Sorry, Leah, but uh, Lisa. Lisa. Leah is a beautiful name. If your name is Leah, don't feel bad from the sheer. Thank you for coming. My daughter is Rachel Leah. She's both. This, this is really what Amuna means. Amuna means, it doesn't just mean blind faith. It means I don't have to wrap my brain around everything in life. I can open myself up to infinity. And I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be scared. I don't have to hate it. I don't have to reject it. Yeah. We don't have to understand. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's also very painful. I'm confronting something that I was not ready for. When Yaakov meets Leah, it's like, where did you come from? Where did this curveball come from? Seven years, I'm working for Rachel. The night of the wedding, it's the greatest night of the li- my life. And Rachel comes into my tent, supposedly. And suddenly, Leah's here. Where did you come from? I didn't ask for you. I didn't pray for you. I didn't expect you. I didn't invite you. I don't want you. So what's my initial response? Get out of my life. And if you're not getting out of my life... I hate you. <laughs> You're too heavy for me. You're a burden. I forgot the Teferis Shloimer, the Radomsky Rebbe writes, Rebetzin, listen to this, the Radomsky Rebbe writes, 
when the morning Yaakov ran to Lavan and he said, Lama Rimisani, why did you deceive me? In Hebrew, Rimisani comes from the word Truma, Laharim, to well, lift up. Lama Rimisani, why did you elevate me like this? Why did you deceive me? Why did you elevate me? This is not something I was ready for. It's too big. It's too heavy. It's too beyond. It's too transcendent. Yeah. Right. He's talking. He's talking to the higher Lavan, Lavan Elion, the higher Lavan, the source of whiteness. Exactly. So he turns to him. So he acknowledges this is way above my pay grade. Lamarim is sunny. And, and Lavan says, of course, you will never be able to be with Rachel if you don't go through Leah. You have to be elevated to that space in order to be able to embrace Rachel. You get it? Lavan means white. White. Lavan Ha'elian, the highest whiteness, yeah. Which is the form of all cleansing and healing. Which is so contradictory. Of course. Because that's the concept. Lavan's deception on a lower level is cruel. On a higher level... It's amazing. So in life, sometimes I'll turn to somebody, why did you deceive me? I'm calling it deception. On a deeper level, it's, they didn't deceive me. They challenged me to a different level of sublimity. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.